0: In, kind of what's going on, and and ultimately what is happening, and so we're reading. Uh, essentially, we're reading a journal from this dude named Habakkuk, and, and I would say this one quick side note. Um, I, I our community group mentioned this to me uh, the other night. Uh, all all uh, this is the third week. All these past three weeks, I have struggled reminding myself to know that we're in Habakkuk, and every once in a while I call him Nehemiah. We're not in Nehemiah, but in the event that I say Nehemiah, I mean Habakkuk. We're like nowhere in my notes do I have anything that references Nehemiah. So for our time here, should you hear me say Nehemiah, I really mean Habakkuk. Nevertheless, uh, so here's here's what's going on. So we're essentially getting a glimpse, a picture into uh, Habakkuk's uh, journal. And what's happening is that everything before him is unraveling in, in light of God's people. God's people are in rebellion. They are rejecting God. They are going deep into idolatrous desires. And it's all happening right before Habakkuk's eyes. And ultimately what he he is doing in this short clip of his journal is that he is crying out to God asking, why? Why is this happening, number one, and how long until you do something about it? That's ultimately what he's saying, and yet it is very relatable, maybe into uh, not just the times that we find ourselves in, but also relatable into your life or in the season of a friend where you're asking, why God, or how long until you actually do something about this. And so the past two weeks, we've kind of breezed through a lot of content where Habakkuk starts by saying how long, and God responds, but doesn't necessarily answer his question. And where we find ourselves today is in Habakkuk's, uh, and I mean this loosely, we find it in his rebuttal, right? And so what I'll do is I'll read this whole section. I'm not going to read chapter 2, verse 1 yet. We're going to park there at the end, but I do want to read verses 12 through 17. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into our time. So this is what Habakkuk uh, responds back to God with. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the more excuse me, when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Join me in prayer, Heavenly Father. As we, uh, man, as we go and look at Your Word, my prayer is uh, one that, that that I would be set aside, and that it would ultimately be Your Holy Spirit who fills this time and who speaks. Number two, pray that You would be glorified in this. Lord, as we have walked through Habakkuk, at times, uh, I think one of the things that we, that we forget is that even though you may respond, it's not necessarily the answer that, that we were looking for, and you call us to live by faith. This is a continuation. Today is a continuation of that. And so may we hold fast to that because of the promises of your word, not our own understanding, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this time to gather and worship. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. We've got a lot to walk through and unpack, so I will do my best. And, and, and here's this quick overview of, of 12 through 17. When we're looking at verses 12 through 17, what, what I love so much about Habakkuk is that he is brutally. Honest. I've mentioned this uh, actually for the past two weeks, and I'll continue doing so because I feel like that's very encouraging. This is a man who has been called by God. This is a man who is working through questions, working through his desires, or working through the injustice that is happening before him. And in the midst of that, we find him being brutally honest before God and extremely passionate, right? Where he's talking about the people that are being raised up, he's referring to who we looked at last week, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians that God has raised up. And he is using this wicked people ultimately to discipline his own children. And so we see Habakkuk being brutally honest. We see him being extremely passionate. And what, what I appreciate is that rather than bringing accusations to God, he brings questions for God. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but if you're very practical or if you find yourself in a tough or a difficult season or you know someone that is in that season, one of the things that I find to be so easy is that we bring accusations to God rather than our questions. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does Right? He doesn't walk away. He doesn't abandon. He doesn't go to other idols. In fact, he goes before God with questions. And I think that's very good. I think that's, that's, that's very uh, transparent. And I say that because ultimately, some of the things that I do, and maybe you do this as well, is that instead of bringing questions to God, you bring accusations. If you say you're this way, then how come there is suffering? Lord, I am in need of healing. You say that you are all powerful. Why haven't I been healed? Right? I tend to do the right things, yet I'm the one that got fired from my job. Right? We'll tend to ask God all of those types of questions and you can insert your favorite line in there. But Habakkuk is brutally honest and he brings his questions rather than his accusations to God. And as he's doing this in this section, what we're seeing is that Habakkuk is externally processing on paper, but he is externally processing what he's thinking and how he is feeling and what that tells us is, it's that his faith isn't weak. See, we can look at this and say, man, this guy's faith is troubled and it's weak. His faith isn't weak. He's a perplexed man, he's confused. He's in his honesty and in his transparency and in his passion, he is coming before God with questions. So his faith isn't weak, but he is confused. What you and I can take from this is that through all of this, we can be sure that we can bring our feelings, our thoughts, and our questions before God, and He can handle them. Let me, let me say that one more time. God can handle your questions. So stop tripping out. He can handle your questions, and He can handle you, and He is not surprised by them. To where you bring him your questions, he's not going to look like, oh man, that is a really good question. I don't know what to do. We do need to go to the whiteboard on that, right? He is not going to be surprised by them. And so what I want you to know is that processing isn't the same as informing, Oftentimes, when we go to God with our questions, or even when we go to God with our season or accusations, we're not necessarily going to learn more about Him, thus, learning more about ourselves. We're going to Him, excuse me, we're going to Him so that we can give Him information. Hey, I don't know if you know, but this is what's going on. I don't know if you are aware, but this is the kind of season I'm in. I don't know if you knew this, but I just got fired from my job. My marriage is on the rocks. My relationships are in trouble. I don't know if you know any of this, so I'm going to put this on the table. You don't need to inform God. Rather, you need to come before Him with your questions, So coming before him with questions is a good thing, right? Externally processing is a good thing. And so as we begin to unpack verses 12 through 17, I'm taking a page out of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book where he gives us four categories in which we deal and address our problems. Now, what I'm going to do as we move forward is, I'm going to reword these, but it still applies to what we are looking at. But these are the four categories. The first thing he says in order to address and deal with our problems is to stop and think. And we're actually going to see Habakkuk, I was about to say Nehemiah, we're actually going to see Habakkuk do all of this. He stops and he thinks. Number two, he says to restate the basic principles. Number three, to apply the principle to the problem. And finally, if still in doubt, commit the problem to God in faith. Those are the four categories that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses in order for us to address and deal with problems. We'll look at each one of these categories. There's a little bit of... Uh, structure for you. We'll look at each of these categories through the following three sections. Okay? So we're going to look at big sections, and we're going to plug these in to those sections. The first one, circumstances and reality. Number two, the character of God. And finally, the call and perspective. Those are the three things. Those are the three sections of our time And those four categories, we're going to plug in to each one of those sections. Here's the first one, right? Circumstances and reality. What's the first thing that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says? He says to stop and think. We know that Habakkuk stopped to think about what was going on. And if you ask, well, how? He wrote it down. He wrote it down. We're reading it. So we know, we can safely assume that he stopped and actually began thinking about it. So he stops and he thinks about what's going on, about what ex- he's experiencing, and he writes it down and check it, and he's incredibly honest, and he's super realistic. He's incredibly realistic. One of the first things that you and I need to understand is that we need to live in reality. Some of you hate that but you need to live in reality. We often use our circumstances or our experiences to better understand God rather than turning to the character of God to better understand our experience and circumstance. You follow me on that? Oftentimes, I'll say it one more time, Oftentimes, you and I will use our experience or our circumstance to better understand God instead of turning to the character of God first in order to better understand our experience and circumstance. And Habakkuk in 12 through 17 is brutally honest, right? He puts everything on the table. He's brutally honest, and he's incredibly realistic. He's living in the reality. In fact, he calls those Babylonians, he calls them evil, he calls them traitors, he calls them wicked, he calls them idolaters. He is aware of what's going on around him. Some of you don't like acknowledging that there are things going on around you and you refuse to live in reality. You refuse to live in reality, and ultimately what that does and what it suggests is that the world surrounds you and that you are at the center of the world. It means you're self-centered. It means that you base your experience on how you view God. If it's a good day, then God must love you. If it's a bad day, then God has obviously forgotten about you. And what that means is that you're constantly on this emotional roller coaster. That at some point you're going to become so nauseated and so exhausted that you're going to bounce because you associate good days with a good God. Bad days, he's totally forgotten about me. But yet that's not what we see here. That's not what we see here. Because when we turn to the character of God, what it helps us do is it helps us remember that at the center is God. And everything revolves around him, not us. And so living in reality, while it's a challenge, we need to own up to it. We need to own up to reality. You can look at social media, how. Ever often you'd like and constantly see either posts or people who refuse to live in the reality that we find ourselves in. We must first look at the reality of the things that are going on around us, be honest about it, so that we can then turn to the character of God. And so here we go, the second section, the character of God. Habakkuk reminds himself of the attributes of God. Dr. Jones said that the second thing was to restate the basic principles. In this case, what Nehemiah, excuse me, what Habakkuk does, (laughs) what Habakkuk does is he reminds himself of the attributes of God. So restating the basic principles means for Habakkuk meant going to, restating the attributes of God. And he lists several, even in the midst of his question, he calls God everlasting. He calls Him holy. He says that He ordains, that He is faithful, that He is creator, that He is sovereign by calling Him Lord. Those are the things that Habakkuk turns to. He calls Him everlasting in such that God knows all. That ultimately, history is His story. He calls Him pure or excuse me he calls him holy which means that he is pure and transcendent which means that he is personal he says that he is faithful by calling him his rock he says that he is creator which puts him in a position of he is created Habakkuk is He calls Him sovereign, saying, calling Him Lord. That means that He rules over everything. There isn't anything outside of His control. And why these characteristics and why these attributes are so incredibly important for us to know and turn to is because if you forget these, or if you are just aware that God is sovereign and all-powerful and that He is everlasting, but you forget that He is holy and personal and faithful, you will start running from God instead of to God. And he lists these attributes so that we are reminded of who God is so that we run to Him, not away from Him. He even goes on to say that God ordains. If we go back to 12 through 17, where are we? He, uh, this is the second part of verse 12. He says, O oh Lord, You have ordained them as a judgment. He's referring to the Babylonians. That God, upon making a plan and beginning to execute it, whatever it is that He wills and decrees, comes into action. It comes into play. There isn't anything stopping it. And when we talk about ordain, we're talking about foreknowledge. Sometimes that gets a bad rap in the church. It gets a bad rap in the church because sometimes, not sometimes, because oftentimes what that leads to is this thing called free will. And people want to know about free will. And so let me tell you about free will. We have free will in the sense that you and I can make decisions and we have choices, but we make those decisions in a limited capacity where God is still sovereign over what we are doing. And ultimately, he is the one that is guiding, leading, and directing us. And that is comforting that is incredibly comforting because it means that we can trust in him and not ourselves. Not ourselves. By way of example, and this sees, actually I'm going to give you two examples, and these are incredibly limited examples, right? I gave one on on Friday at our CG. When my wife and I tell our son, hey, it's time to, Uh, well, it's not time to go to bed, but it's time to go to your room from eight to nine. Typically what Seth does is he, he reads. And so we say, man, it's time to, it's time to go to, to go to bed or time to go to your room and read. And he'll go to his room. Now, one of the things that my dad used to tell me that I tell Seth at times is as he's in his room, I tell him, you don't have to read. You just can't come out of there. Right? Eight to nine. That's, that's the rule right? You don't have to read. And so in that, he makes choices and he makes decisions. Sometimes he reads. Sometimes he's listening to music. Sometimes he practices his saxophone. Sometimes he gets things in order for the day, right? He is making decisions in a limited capacity because when mom and I say, it's time to go to bed, what does he do? He goes to sleep. He goes to bed. Ultimately, it is mom and dad who are leading, guiding, and loving him in that capacity. Because if it was the other way, there's a reason. Let me just say that there's a reason my son is not the spiritual leader in the house. Right? There's a reason for that. Just as much as there is a reason that you and I are not God. Okay? And on top of that, man, if, if the sovereignty of God gets you a little uncomfortable, man, if you say that God isn't sovereign, then God isn't God. It is through the attributes of God that Habakkuk is then able to apply his attributes to the problem. Remember the third thing Dr. Jones said. Third thing he said is apply the principle to the problem. And so Habakkuk applies the attributes of God to the problem, to his experience and to his circumstance so that he best or better understands God. Habakkuk knows that these aren't God's last words. He says this at the beginning of verse 12 We shall not die. So he knows that these aren't God's last words because if you read, or as we've read, 12 through 17, there is no indication that God is abandoning his people. There is no indication that God is turning away from his people. And so what it leads Habakkuk to do and where it leads him to land on is that the coming invasion of the Babylonians are a tool in God's hands for the correction, for the discipline, and for the purification of his people. But he can only get to that conclusion by first living in reality and turning to the character and the attributes of God. This is the first things that he does. And in the midst of that, he's very human about it. Because even though he's coming to these conclusions, he's still tripping out. Just like you and I trip out when things go wrong. Don't say you don't. You do. You trip out when things go wrong. When things go wrong, you're like, God, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? God, what are you doing? And he's like, chill. 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 This is, this is the example uh, I, w- I would give you, right? So, or better yet, let me tell you this, and then I'll go into an illustration. Like, our life, our day, is like an episode God has already seen. He's not tripping out. Here's what I mean by that. And much like the previous one, much like the previous illustration, this is also very limited. So, my wife and I, I should say my wife. She likes to watch like TV, like uh, uh, Netflix, right? And uh, and on occasion, I will join her for a few Netflix shows, especially if they're written well and there's some history on there. Like I'm a big fan of The Crown. That's a really good show. Um, a <laughs> big fan of uh, Blacklist, right? So anyway, I digress. And so what we do sometimes is uh, at the end of the day, after Seth's gone to bed, we will watch an episode together. Uh, we've already finished The Crown, but we would watch it, you know, one, one at a time. <clears throat> there was one time, I think it was The Blacklist, and it could be wrong, right? And, and uh, anyway, so I think it was The Blacklist, and I, and I really, really love um, the dude that, I always forget his name, the dude that plays Reddington. James Spader. I love his character. Like, just, man, he's so cool if you have not seen The Blacklist. I mean that. The reason I say that is because... There were a few times, one in particular, uh, but there were a few times where, where Rebecca was at work and I worked from home, and so I would stick around for lunch and I'd cook myself something. And, and, and if I'm at home for lunch, I like to watch an episode or half of an episode of something. It's usually The Office and Parks and Rec because I just need some noise in the background. I'm not necessarily paying attention. But uh, if it was The Blacklist, that series had led us to this place where you're just wondering what's happening next. And so in my weakness, um, I watched an episode of, of The Blacklist, the episode that we were supposed to watch that night, right? Uh, so, my wife's holy, I'm not. And, and so I watched the episode, and I was like, man, that was really good. Rebecca comes home, we got dinner ready, Seth has gone to bed, blah, 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 right? And so we're sitting on the couch, and I'm not going to say anything. And so we're watching this, this episode— and James Spader does something that caused me to, like, respond, but in a way that gave, gave up what was going to happen next. And she puts it on pause, and she was like, did you watch this already? And I was like, hey, I love you. <laughs> right? So, so that happens, right? All right. All uh, right. What, what she was upset about was, man, I am no longer in the moment with her. I'm no longer uh, full of suspense with her because why? I already know what's going to happen, right? I already know the ending of that, that episode and what's going to happen and how Reddington was going to do his thing. That's kind of what it's like. Again, this is very limited. That's kind of what it's like when we're tripping out and, God, you're forsaking me. God, what are you doing? And he's like, I've already seen this episode. I've already seen this. And I actually know what happens. I've actually watched the whole season. And I know what happens. Right? That's ultimately what it looks like. Right? Our job is not to trust in tomorrow. It's to trust the one who does know about tomorrow. Our job is not to have faith in the outcome, but in the person. Say it one more time. Our job is not to have faith in the outcome, but in the person. Even in the middle of a chaotic season, even in the middle of a crazy day, we have no idea what's going on. What we wrap ourselves around is first the character of God and embrace reality. And that's very relevant to the person of Habakkuk because the name Habakkuk actually means embrace. So embrace reality. Doesn't mean you're going to like it. I'm not saying you're going to like reality. Right? Doesn't mean we cannot embrace it. Third section. This is uh, Habakkuk. Actually, before we get to that third section, which is the call and perspective, uh, this is uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. So, here's what's happened. So, Habakkuk has put it all on the table. He is talking to God. He's asked, bringing him questions, but he's also reminding himself of his attributes of God. He is also uh, coming to conclusions. That doesn't mean he's not confused. That doesn't mean he's not satisfied, but he is still pushing the envelope with God in this conversation. And then at the end of 17, he transitions into chapter 2, verse 1, and this is the turning point in the letter. This is the turning point for Habakkuk. He writes, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The fourth thing that Dr. Jones says we do, or we should do in terms of our categories, is if if still in doubt, Commit the problem to God in faith. Habakkuk, in humility. That's, that's the key. In humility commits his problem to God in faith. In other words, throughout this whole time, Habakkuk never walks away from the Lord. He is not arrogant in his pursuit. And he is not a man sitting still. And so this is what he does. He goes up to the tower at his watch post. Now, here's what he means by that before I give you a little bit more practical stuff. Here's what he means. It means that this dude is a watchman, right? So he goes up to the tower and a watchman's job in the Old Testament was to be the guy above the city or above the town so that when danger was coming, he would be the one that rang the bell or yelled to the people that there is danger, that there is an invasion, or that there is a messenger coming right? Habakkuk goes up to the watch post and still does his job in the midst of waiting on God. He doesn't turn away from him. He doesn't pursue God arrogantly, but instead he waits. He waits while doing his job. A person who is waiting is not a person sitting still. A person who is waiting is not a person who is sitting still. The practical side of this is that one, man, he he owns his post and he still has a job to do. Number two, upon going up to the tower, what happens? He broadens his perspective. Often when you and I are in troubled seasons, Right? We're constantly here. We talked about this last week and the week before, that you and I will become issue-driven instead of cross-driven. So we're constantly looking at just all the muck and mess that's around us, trying to figure it all out. One of the things that he does in this is that he detaches himself from the problem. He goes up and broadens his perspective. Have you ever gone hiking? Not here, but... You ever gone hiking, right? Like, if you're kind of lost, or if you are, right? one of the things that you should do or that most do is that they will climb a very tall uh, hill, mountain, something that is elevated over where you are. And so they will climb that so that their perspective is broadened so that they can see more or less where they are and where they're going. He goes up to the watchtower by... One, he still does his job. Two, detaching himself from the problem. The second thing is, as he's up there, and you hear it in his, in his words, he is persistent in hearing and coming before the Lord. Check it. He says, uh, he'll go up to the tower And look out to see what he will say to me. He's expecting a response. He's persistent in his response, he's persistent in his pursuit. And he does so by waiting, by standing firm, and by being watchful. Some of you, when it gets really difficult, not only do you not want to live in reality, you bounce you bounce instead of embracing that reality but because you have first turned to the character of God to better understand what's going on and even if it's still murky and messy you still pursue what God has called you to. That means husbands you still love, pursue, date, and sacrificially love and lead your wives. Wives, that means that you submit, respect, and love your husband. It is an ongoing cycle. Those of you that are single... It does not revolve around you. At the center of our world where we live should be God and His reign so that we best understand what is going on. So that we are not moved. So that we are not deterred from what He is doing. Just because reality stinks doesn't mean or give you, doesn't give you the right to walk away from your call. It does not give you enough or any justification to bounce on others just because you don't like it. Like Habakkuk, wait, stand firm, and be watchful. And be watchful. He doesn't really even get an answer to, man, if you're so awesome, God, why is there suffering? He doesn't get an answer until next week. I mean, you can go there right now and, and read it, but in terms of a sermon, we won't cover it till next week. Wait, stand firm, and be watchful. And I'll say one more thing, because I mentioned like wives and husbands. Wives, when I say submit, I don't mean to a domineering husband. I mean to a dude who is sacrificially loving you, who constantly dies to himself. That's the dude, not the other jerk. So here are my final thoughts. the question of why this is happening or why does god allow these things to happen the question that question must first come from a view of reality and that goes together it's not or a view of reality and the character of god concluding that god is not yet done so you and i must live by faith not sight not sight. Particularly when you feel like evil is just uh, uh, victorious. It's doing His thing. Even when you feel like, man, I constantly do the right thing, yet I lose. In that time, what you and I need to do is find ourselves in faith going to the attributes and biblical truths of God. So let's look to Jesus Let's look to Jesus, who was humble, yet there are super proud people, who was poor, yet there are rich people, who was obedient, yet there are disobedient people. And so when you and I look at the world, we see, I think, most of the time that it feels like evil is prevailing, the bad guys are winning. When we look to... The life of Jesus. We see that His friend betrayed Him. That He was falsely accused. Falsely tried. That He was beaten. His beard was plucked. He was crucified on a cross. And then He died. The only good person voluntarily took the worst beating. And it looks like the kingdom of God is going down. It looks like all hope is lost. And then, three days later, he resurrects and he rises and he conquers sin, death, Satan, all while taking the wrath of God. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will return to reclaim his bride, the church. And upon that day, our faith will turn into sight. And upon that day, every tear will be white. All will be made new and restored. And until that day, we wait, we stand firm, and we are watchful. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we close our time, Lord, I'm, I'm just going to straight up confess I, I don't like waiting. And standing firm sometimes sounds confusing. And, uh, and being watchful, I feel inadequate. And I'm sure uh, many of my brothers and sisters here feel that way. But nevertheless, one, we know we can go to you with these feelings and thoughts. Two, you are faithful to remind us of who you are and who you've called us to be. That upon your son Jesus taking your wrath, pardoning our sin, he gives us his righteousness, which... In turn, means that we are new, made new, that we are redeemed, that we are loved, that we belong, that you will never forsake us, that you will never leave us, that this has been the plan from the very beginning, that you in love pursued us and adopted us, So Lord, may we praise you for that today. May we praise you for that despite or in spite of our circumstances. So that we would hold to you and your word through faith alone. And God, as we work or walk into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, let this be a continuation of our worship through sacrifice. Let this be a continuation of our worship through a tangible testimony of your work. Let this be uh, an act of worship as we praise you for not only what or who you say we are, but what you have done in and through us. And so we lift this time up to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.